Well, you can talk about films with a philosopher's zeal, or measure them all by box office appeal. But for once in your life, be real. Welcome, one and all, to Be Real. It's your film reviewing and reappraising podcast. My name's Chance Solon Pfeiffer. And I'm Noah Ballard. And we're your hosts of this almost weekly show where we routinely review a trio of films at a time based around a similar genre or theme or some commonality, some strand. And our strand this time is uh, one of the weirder strands that Hollywood has ever produced. And he goes by the name Michael Keaton. Yeah, Michael Keaton's a real, like a proto uh, Nicolas Cage, if you will. In a way. He's one of these, like, character actor, sort of revered actors that, like, never really made it, right? They, like, never pulled the full, like, Tom Cruise into Tom Hanks from every generation. Like, he's just, like, a go-to actor. He sure. just we had this moment with him in the, like the eighties and early nineties and then nothing. Well, stuff, but stuff nobody saw. And then this yeah. bizarre renaissance of a man. It's true. And of an actor. And I think we came up with three movies that like, not only speak to Mr. Michael Keaton's talents, but they speak to just like the roles that he found himself in <laughs> and why those sort of work, uh, or why they worked in the, the 80s and yeah. why they maybe could work again. The different epochs of his career, I think we pulled from pretty nicely, which is sort of like the the comedic, um, you know, fresh off being a stand-up in sort of like cultural 80s comedies to his weird moments of sheer stardom at the end of the late 80s uh, all the way to the, to the comeback in 2014. So that's what we're doing today. Should we quick hit our ethos corner, Noah? Absolutely. I would love that chance. Thanks. Thanks for doing this. Keep it real. Think slow. We should get through it just fine. Hello, Ryder, Donnie. Donnie, hello, Ryder. I will start just by saying I watched my Bengals lose today. I watched my fantasy team lose to Sarah's father's fantasy football team today. Um, and uh, I finished a book by George Pelicanos, who's the, the head writer on that show, The Deuce, uh, HBO's The Deuce. It was a great book. Um, yeah. First you really book- thought about like father figures this weekend. Yeah. <laughs> In a big way. Sure, yeah. Marvin Lewis letting me down. Sarah's father putting me in my place. And, uh, I don't know, George Pelicano speaking to another time. Then I watch these Michael Keaton movies. So, yeah, lots of paternal anxiety going on. How about you, buddy? You, uh, yeah, you became a veritable Mr. Mom. <laughs> sure, sure. Um, I'm a little hungover, Chance, because I just uh, last night went to my great friend Brent Rivers. His, uh, I had a friend of the podcast. When uh, his friends wedding. of the pod get married, you gotta go. 
Well, I mean, that was also part of the wedding. Like, we are close friends as well as having this business affiliation. Yeah, I, don't, I don't understand that part, but keep going. Okay. But yeah, so I read a poem called From Blossoms by Lee Young Lee uh, as part of the wedding, which was totally overshadowed by how wonderful, like, they had written vows to each other. And at one point, like, Brett, like, through tears goes, I don't know, Galen, maybe we're magic? And, like, the house fucking erupted with, like, <laughs> just, like, the sound of, like, the tsunami swells. And I was, wow. like, standing in the back losing. Like, I couldn't I couldn't deal. After I read my poem, I became so choked up. I had to, like, retreat to the rear of this outdoor space right on this beautiful lake. Um, but, yeah, the wedding was great. It was, like, a really, it's really nice. Um, I feel like at weddings sometimes I could cut loose, dance a little. Sure. Not really feel so self-conscious about, you know, everything that I do. Throw on some Harry Belafonte and get the conga line going. Brent, love you, buddy. Okay, let's run. Do we have any other comparisons or context we need to make for Michael Keaton? We already kind of talked about how he's... He's one of those rare actors who seem to be like, we consider him a movie star almost by accident. Because he is a character sure. actor, for sure, right? He kind of reminds me of like less successful Jeff Bridges, which is just like he's made a, he has some iconic roles that are based on sort of like happenstance and personality. But yeah. like he's definitely liable to like disappear for long stretches of time. He's kind of like like Michael Shannon with a worse agent. <laughs> uh-huh. Where he didn't pick well, I guess he just didn't have those indie movies to pick from to like keep it. But he like he fashions some that's what's so interesting about Birdman. Is that where we're starting? It is, yep. Yes, that's what's so interesting about Birdman is like how it's like a, this metafiction of Michael Keaton's life mm-hmm. where he was Batman, like the the this this uh, iconic 90s series that led to then two terrible spin-off movies after his original duo of films mm-hmm. as Bruce Wayne but like in the 90s he was like a big deal because of just his affiliation with this brand but like also can i like say something bold about michael keaton please that's why we do a michael keaton together. and you know Shoot me back, shoot me down if you if you think I'm wrong here. But like Michael Keaton is one of the ugliest people I think I've like ever had. Rude. You you don't think so? He's Rude. just not a he's not a good looking man. He's like weird looking and kind of like scary looking. Like he looks like an actor that should be in like a, t- a series of Tim Burton movies. Okay. But he's like not. You know, do you think like I was sitting with Lucy today watching? Mr. I don't Mom. think he's like a hottie, but I think one of the ugliest people. However, you're gonna finish that sentence. Maybe who's ever played Batman is the only way I would agree with it. Yeah, but he's he's one of the uglier people that's ever needed to like pull off this this like Tom Hanks somewhere between Tom Hanks and Keanu Reeves uh-huh. kind of like here's a premise movie. Just bring bring what you have to the table, and <laughs> sure. we'll see what it does. Yeah. But, like, he's, I just don't think he's, like, movie star good looking. And it's, like, sometimes it's, like, he's just a funny looking guy. Yeah. And don't you feel like he comes into these movies with, like, very much a handicap, like, in winning us over? Mm, no. Because, like, it's, I feel like it's the opposite. 
It's that like he looks like a normal person with a movie star's charisma. I think he just kind of like always looks like Beetlejuice. <laughs> um, well, let's get into Birdman because uh, that's the comeback. I mean, that's the flashpoint. You people, you've got to remember this movie. It was uh, it was the Oscar for Best Picture three years ago. Uh, directed by Alejandro Iñárritu, stars Michael Keaton in this very, you called it sort of metafiction. Um, I guess we more it's just really, really fitting. Keaton himself has denied that he had no creative control and doesn't really see himself in this character, which is crazy. But Right. That's a crazy redev on this movie. <laughs> Sir. Um, but yeah, that's, uh, that's what Keaton says. It's about uh, an actor... Uh, who used to play Birdman in this g- giant uh, outsized franchise. The actor's name is Riggin Thompson. And now, 20, 25 years later, whatever the distance between uh, Burton Batman and Birdman <laughs> the film is, uh, Riggin Thompson is on Broadway uh, directing, producing, and starring in an adaptation of Raymond that he Carter. Wrote. Yes, that he adapted for the stage. Right? Raymond Carver. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, and, he's, he's producing his short stories as like a long narrative work. Right. And the play is not going well because... The play is going weird. The play is going weird. It hasn't actually started yet. Um, right. We have no real sense of like if this play is... Well, that's the funny thing about it because so much hangs on the talent of this like maybe talented person, yeah. which I would argue is the shortcomings or longcomings of the next two movies we're going to talk about. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the quickly you sort of see that uh, maybe he's hearing a voice or maybe that he has some weird control it's Birdman. or thinks he does. Yes, the voice of Birdman, who's like his which alter makes ego. the premise, which makes the premise even more preposterous that uh, Michael Keaton like didn't see himself in this role because like he's definitely always hearing Batman in his ears. <laughs> like there's no way that's not happening. His co-star, whom he hates because his co-star is a bad actor, gets knocked out of the play. So they have to go get Ed Norton. And there's just like this cavalcade of like great actors in this movie. Um, some of whom have amazing parts like Ed Norton being the uber pretentious, uh, like pinch hit actor. Uh, Zach Galifianakis is having a ton of fun. I think Emma Stone is pretty good. But then you have like Naomi Watts and Amy Ryan as... Uh, an actor and Keaton's ex-wife respectively, who their parts are certainly not as rich. Um, right. But yeah, it's just them trying to get through this play as like Keaton and the, or as Regan Thompson and the movie uh, reckon with like the, not only the times and what publicity and fame mean in 2014, but also like the difference between highbrow and lowbrow and what is art and like what is a legacy for somebody who sold out long ago. It's uh, it's an extremely busy movie and hard to sum up. And it should be also noted that this movie takes place in like one over one shot. Indeed. Made to look that way. Made to look like it's one shot. Mm -hmm. Um, Like incredible technical prowess Mm -hmm. by like an already sort of pretty ambitious director. We had it all. You were a movie star, remember? Who was this guy? He used to be Birdman. I like that poster. 
wrote this adaptation? I did, yeah. And you're directing and starring in your adaptation. That's yeah. ambitious. Are you afraid people will say you're doing this play to battle the impression that you're a washed-up comic strip character? Absolutely not. That's why 20 years ago I said no to Birdman 4. Bold the man's law! You do Bold the man's law! Now you're about to destroy what's left of your career. We should have done that reality show they offered us. Shut up. You know I'm right. You're so nice. Hey, This movie came out only three years ago and won the best picture, and I've seen it a bunch of times. And I really like it, but it's interesting to just have that little bit of separation. Just a little bit of cold light of day where, like, Inuritu's made The Revenant now, and it's just like, oh, Inuritu, you, do you make movies or do you just, like, flex? Um, and so, like, to go back with that sort of thing, and then you've seen Keaton be giving stuff like The Founder, and it's just like, okay, so the, yeah. the Keaton-assance um, is that... Yeah, is the Keaton-assance as fun as we thought it was three years ago? We just have that little bit of distance that I kind of want to look at this movie through. Inuritu has, like, revealed himself as, like, a pretty like you said, sort of flexing director. Like sometimes he'll take like what is a pretty simple story and just like make it seem like he's in the Christopher Nolan school of yeah. light shining. But I would say Inaritu is a far more like humanitarian a filmmaker than maybe uh, Christopher Nolan. Sure. That seems fair. Um, he's, he's more interested in characters, but like the way he chooses to like unpack the characters, I think is like very light, a very flashlight to the eyeballs. Hope your hope your pupils don't adjust by the two hour runtime of this movie. It's interesting you say shines a light because to me it like lays bare the quality of the the characters. Like it really energizes the good characters. But like when sure. the people who don't have much to do, unfortunately the women I think in this movie show up, it's kind of like the shallowness of their parts is really naked when they have to fit into that pace. Like, even before we get to the idea of how, like, the female characters are portrayed, just the idea of how this movie is presented to you, like, ultimately keeps you from scrutinizing it, like, about an hour earlier than you maybe should. Probably, yeah, probably so. Because it's just, it makes it rapturous. Right. It's really hard to see. Yeah, it's not till like, the second time Ed Norton visits Emma Stone on the roof where you're kind of like, oh, uh uh-huh. Um, but then you start to have the, by that time, you've got the Birdman craziness picking up where Keaton's gone. Well, that's what I kind of, that's what I kind of like about this movie mm-hmm. is how it's so subtly in the second act switches to like a very different kind of movie that I totally wouldn't have like bought into had I not been mesmerized by the technical ambitions of it which then sort of make you doubly forget about the shortcomings or the unnecessariness of the previous one. Sure. Yeah, if you weren't, like, neck deep in Inuritu's version of, like, State and Maine when the movie, like, right. becomes mother, exclamation point, all of a sudden, <laughs> you right. wouldn't like it so much, yeah. Exactly. Like, then it becomes, like, a, an interesting movie and just and not, like, so much an homage. Right, right. It's which I think is... And then it becomes a movie about insanity that maybe justifies the technical aspect of it. Maybe. Quite possibly. Uh, well, let's talk Keaton, shall we? Yeah. Well, this is the thing. Keaton is stuck in a premise movie here. Mm-hmm. And can he do it? What do you think? Well, you, st- you, you What do you think? I think that 
in retrospect, I, I think he's the best. Keaton's performance is the best part of this movie for me, except for maybe Ed Norton, who's like throwing at a Raldus Chapman uh, type speeds. <laughs> he's <laughs> no. just sweating <laughs> from every pore. He's drenched all the time. Um, but Keaton, yeah, for, for me, this is like a, you see both why we're able to do this category keaton unhinged because a screw is very clearly loose and becoming dangerously looser the longer the movie wears on but he has this sense of wanting in this movie this sense of like very human desperation that i think even if i kind of like find myself wondering like i'm sorry what does this character actually want and like what does it have to do with twitter and superhero movies when i just look at michael keaton having conversations with people and whether it's the way that he tries to empathize with uh naomi watts being on broadway for the first time and not quite being able to do it or just the way he drinks a beer where he's like trying to do it so casually and amy ryan's like you're drinking again and he's like well sure yeah i can have a beer can i and he's he's just miming it so casually but he's drinking it too fast for it to be casual there's just all these little keatonisms in here that feel very good to me my theory here is that michael keaton in all three of these movies delivers a very similar performance it's just filmed in three very different ways okay and i think the insanity of this the way this movie is shot sort of weirdly lines up with his like normal keaton like i'm losing my mind performance Mm -hmm. and you know, I mean, if you'd shot Mr. Mom as one continuous take, like, it would have been something, I think, roughly comparable, <laughs> like, in terms of his performance. True. Yeah, with repair people rushing in and out and appliances going even, nuts. Right, even Beetlejuice. Like, it's it's going weirdly from different timelines and different spaces, and if you had d- done it as one shot, like, I st- still believe you would have had roughly the same Keaton performance. That's funny, that's a good point. He's like a one-note guy. He's a Matthew McConaughey, but like not as good-looking. But he's so much more human. But again, he was more human than Matthew McConaughey. For for me, when I see Keaton, I see somebody who, and he said as much, grew up idolizing Jack Nicholson, who is also just all you know eyes and teeth in his performances, but who has, you know, a a joviality to the madness that like makes him kind of like closer to an everyman than Jack Nicholson could be. I just can't buy into the fact that you see Michael Keaton as an everyman. Like, he's just not, like, he's just kind of creepy, like, in everything. Like, this movie plays into, like, how flawed he is, but, like, in when we get to Mr. Mom, which is, like, a deeply troubling film, <laughs> let it just be said, I would say if you, if it didn't have that, like, light sort of violin music in the background of it, it could be as dark as Birdman. Sure, sure. But we'll get there. But I think, like, because this movie allows him to be, like, flawed, and, like, why is he drinking that early? And, like, why is he being mean to his kids? It's like, well, it's 2017. Like, everybody does that now. Uh-huh. Like, you can still have a leading man who's like, haven't you seen Breaking Bad? The anti-hero's the thing now. Yeah. You know, but he's still the same, like, he portrays the same level of dude to me. It's funny that like when you hear his Beetlejuice voice, you're like, is that Michael Keaton? But when you hear him now doing this sort of like Hulk Hogan tinged Birdman, like it's always been we brother. It's like, oh yeah, that's Michael Keaton. <laughs> you know? Well, it's funny because he's doing like the voice that he had to do when he was in the Batman suit. 
I don't think his... But, like, his impression of it or something. I think I Christian... just can't get over <laughs> that read that he doesn't identify with this character. <laughs> it's funny. He's that my... makes him almost, like, as tragic as uh, Regan himself. Uh-huh. <laughs> Uh, let's talk about the supporting cast and maybe some of the themes. I just think Edward Norton in this movie is absolutely electric. And that has not changed a lick since the first time right. I saw it. But he's definitely like way more of a sexual predator than I remembered him being uh, when I first saw this movie. Oh, okay. Well, I remembered it pretty clearly. But yeah, he just... That... The hat I remember him being sort of does. like... Yeah. Oh my God. He's a perfect foil to Riggan Thompson, who has this sense of desperation about his, both how the play is going, but his very existence. And then to run up against this guy who, like, just does not care, but still just kind of just covets. But that is so, like, that's also Edward Norton compared to Michael Keaton. Mm-hmm. Like, Edward Norton is considered, like, a great actor, though he's forayed into, you know, the comic book fair. He still, like, has this confidence. He's never had any scandals or anything in the tabloids. He is the foil to the school of Michael Keaton that is on trial in this movie. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. So it's perfect casting. Which I think is so... It's perfect. I think all of it's perfect casting in saying that, like, here's... I mean, even with uh, Emma Stone as the daughter, like, here's the daughter telling the, like, aging older, like, father figure that, like, you you don't even have a Facebook page. Mm -hmm. Like, that is a younger school of acting who, like, and movie stardom, to be honest, that it's, like, you know, people making fan websites and talking about people on the internet. It's, like... Before the Michael Keaton renaissance, like, nobody talking about Michael Keaton on the internet. Right. It wasn't, he just, like, wasn't the right demo. So, yeah, I think the casting is, is this movie, because ultimately it's sort of throwing, if you want to talk about themes and motifs, Please. it's throwing this idea of, like, where acting is and, like, where celebrity is and, like, what it means to be an artist, as, you know, according to Inaritu here. But, like, what it means to, like, make commercial movies and, like, where everyone's piece is in there. So it is, like, a state in Maine. That's a great comparison. And that's why, like, it gets so much, like, Hollywood buzz and love. And that's why it obviously won the Oscar. Right. Was because it's such a, like, it's a jerk-off. You know, being like, our job is so difficult. We make, we have to make pictures that are both commercial and artistic. Yeah. Well, this is the thing. I think it addresses all those things, but I don't actually think it has a take on those things, which is like the movie's biggest flaw and why I think it's easy for like a bunch of Oscar voters to sit in a room and be like, wow, it sure did play around with the themes that we sometimes think about at our parties. But like when you you get to the end and it's just like this bat is basically the simplest version of the movie is a battle between ego and id and apparently id wins it's the happy place but like what is it not it doesn't amount to anything all of the like horrible like commentary on social media especially the most cringeworthy line is the like this is power dad like it, at the end it has nothing to say about industry anything what's so like deeply unconcerned with any like interesting social issues yeah like, it's like, let's look at ultimately who were, like, very wealthy white actors, like, attempt to put on a play. Yeah. And, like, because it is contained in this theater, it's theater of theater. Mm-hmm. And which is, and they're also doing a play. So it's, it's, it's even bigger than that. But at the same time, it's, 
it's it's just so like in such a vacuum that it almost feels like without air. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Cause like it says, that. it says things about social media, but like it doesn't fundamentally like understand social media. Let's remind the folks how we uh, rate movies on this podcast. All movies and most of life can be described with our rating system. The four categories are good, good, bad, bad, good, bad, and bad, good. The first good or bad refers to intellectual quality. The second is pure pleasure. Good good is easy. Things that make you feel smart and happy, and that for both reasons you'd want to do again. Like watching The Departed, or Jaws, or calling your pal to do a podcast with him. Good good movies make Noah say... Love that. Bad bad is easy too. Things that bring you neither stimulation nor joy. Basically, you just wasted your time. Things like watching White Chicks or Wild Wild West, a conceptual double album of Christian pop punk. Bad, bad movies make Chance say things like, I hated that. Good, bad, then, is something you recognize as worthwhile, but not something you enjoy. Schindler's List, Requiem for a Dream, most classical music, eating your goddamn vegetables. Good, bad is about being an adult, and these kinds of movies make Noah say, I mean, I'm glad I saw it once, but never again. Conversely, bad good is for your thoughtless inner child. It's Cheetos. It's late career Billy Joel. It's movies like Christmas Vacation. Honey? Kids? And Deep Blue Sea. Bad good movies make chance say, But it failed in such an entertaining way. Got all that? Now buckle up, because you're about to hear an opinion stated as fact. For me, Birdman is, is still good good. I think that, like you said, it's one of those movies that has a very interesting relationship with scrutiny and it does what it can to stop you from scrutinizing it too hard. And it really depends on what you watch. Like I think if you do a sheer thematic read of this movie, you'll find that it does a lot of playing and not a lot of interesting actual analysis or especially answer giving. But I think if you watch it for say a Michael Keaton podcast and watch what it's doing with him and watch what he's doing and watch like the various layers of insanity happening in his performance, I think you will especially like it and the way the visual inflects the actors. So good, good for me still. I'm going to have to go with, um, I'm going to go with bad, good. Oh my. I think this is like a, for all the reasons you said it, like a wildly entertaining movie, but I think ultimately when we look at like at the construction of a film, like, yes, like on the technical, like how the camera moves, it is a well-made movie, but ultimately like the ambition of the script is so slight and so little and so self-important that like, it's hard to say that this movie like is a good, good, Mm. you know, if you go into the movies, like, I guess if you go into a movie, like trying to escape, like that's what makes this movie good. But that's also what in my mind makes gone in 60 seconds. Good. (laughs) Sure. So this is just pure pleasure for me. Um, I got you. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of like uh, one of the, I don't know, somebody like a little bit more of a jock got a hold of a Charlie Kaufman script or something. It's just too cute for me. Yeah. It's too cute. It's Ocean's Eleven of like the ego. Sure, <laughs> sure, sure. Well, before we get to 1988's Beetlejuice, before we go backward in time to long before the Keaton, the Keaton wilderness years, uh, why don't we talk to... The kickbacks Billy Yost about what he finds so endearing, but also disturbing. I've, it's interesting to talk to someone who both loves this man and fully recognizes that he's a big weirdo. 
All right, well, our guest today on Be Real is the singer and songwriter and one of the guitarists in the Chicago-based rock band, The Kickback. They have a new record out that I really love called Weddings and Funerals. Um, and if you like an album that literally begins with maniacal laughter and then ends with a kind of a tight, lonely drum beat, you'll love it too. Uh, but he's here today as maybe Michael Keaton's most devoted fan and potential best friend, if Keaton would maybe hit him back on Twitter, it's Billy Yost. Welcome to the show, man. Hi, Chance. Thanks for having me. I will ask several times if Michael Keaton would please just write me back once. I don't think this podcast is a better avenue than your Twitter account. I don't know, man. You don't know your <laughs> listenership. <laughs> it's true. He could be. He could be one of dozens. Um, well, I appreciate you being on, man. I've, re- I've wanted to have you for a long time just because you, you started uh, an independent podcast for your band, like what, like six years ago now? And it made me think... That uh, doing doing podcasts is a labor of love. If you just get cool people to come on it and you do it enough, they can be good-ish. It is a labor of love, and we are not even to 150 episodes yet, so we're really taking our time. Sure. But, but yeah, you do it because you love it. And perhaps one of your listeners is uh, Michael Keaton or Michael Keaton's representation. So... Kind of as as long as I've known you and and known the band, I've always thought of Michael Keaton as kind of like a totem of your band, just because you guys are very open about, um, or you I should say probably most of all, very <laughs> <laughs> yeah. open about uh, expressing love for him, and certainly over social media, you've been like the number one purveyor in my feeds of uh, Keaton pictures. <laughs> Yeah, I'm glad to hear that. Right. Um, If uh, I've got competition, I'm going to have to beat him with a tire iron or something. Sure, sure. No, you are uh, strongly leading the way on Keaton pictures over the years and Keaton memes and such. Um, But what what does he... I assume you had a childhood encounter with him and his movies, but what what does he mean to you? I, I thought about this. Chance, you and I have talked several times over the years, Indeed. and our talks always tend to go pretty. We go pretty hard when we start talking. Sure. And uh, as so, I was thinking about talking about Michael Keaton with you today, and I was really trying to figure out why, like this guy, who I have a sort of seemingly kind of like insane fake public relationship with, <laughs> <laughs> like one one way false, like why I'm so adamant about trying to like force an actor on people um Uh but i I don't know initially i just think of these two vhs tapes i had growing up and one of them was um we would always put two movies on uh, a vhs tape we could we do the long the terrible copy like the quality wouldn't be as good but you could fit two movies on a vhs tape oh sure yeah um one of those had beetlejuice and i think uh Sesame Street, a holiday Sesame Street Muppets thing on it. Okay. And then the other one, which we actually paid real money for uh, and was not dubbed at my uh, dad's school that had the double (laughs) dubbing uh, (laughs) uh, VHS player was uh, the retail copy of Batman. Uh Uh-huh. And, and, you know, those came out really close to each other. And I was a little kid who shouldn't have seen either of those movies, but um, was lucky enough to have older brothers. And so Michael Keaton was very early on was like a ubiquitous face in my household. Sure. And um, for as um, controversial as his being Batman at the time was, you know, I was three years old, so I didn't have a whole lot to say. He was, that was just Bruce Wayne. 
uh-huh. Adam West and Michael Keaton were both Bruce Wayne to me. So, did you branch into other Keaton performances, like as a teenager? How did how did he? Because I feel like you ride for other Keaton movies as well. Yeah, absolutely. But I there was definitely a a dark period. You know, when you're you're ten or eleven, like you're not seeing Jackie Brown or no. um, any of those. Um, it probably wasn't until the end of high school again that I, I really started actively carrying a torch for the guy because he had seemingly disappeared off the face of the planet. Yeah. And I felt like it was necessary uh, with those new Batman movies coming out, which I particularly, like, I wasn't, I loved, um, I loved Christian Bale and American Psycho, and that was one of my favorite movies in high school. Mm-hmm. But I did not ever love Christian Bale as Bruce Wayne. And so I think I felt compelled to try and force a Bruce Wayne that I found more uh, menacing uh, onto onto people who were suddenly jumping on the Batman train. Wait, you, th- you feel that Michael Keaton is a more menacing Bruce Wayne than Christian Bale? Absolutely. I think Michael Keaton still scares me when I watch him being Bruce Wayne. He's just this short guy with inappropriate hair. <laughs> Uh-huh. It just doesn't make sense in a lot of ways. And Michael Keaton has this weird, like, it's within reason that he would grab a fork and stab you with it. Yeah. And I like that in a Bruce Wayne. I think Christian Bale played a, a much more calculating Bruce Wayne, whereas Michael Keaton seemed ready to snap. That's a, or get nuts, as it were. Yeah. Um. <laughs> exactly, yeah. That's an, it's such a deep read, though, because I feel like I, maybe I just say other people would agree with me because it's my thought, but I just think of Christian Bale as so much more physically imposing. But you think Keaton has that that underlying energy that actually makes him scarier? No, I'm admittedly in a very small minority, for sure. And uh, yeah, Keaton's does obviously doesn't have the size. He's a wee man. I own... Uh, he did a movie that he tried to distance himself from because he got sued over it called The Merry Gentleman, okay. where he plays a, a lonely but uh, heart of gold uh, assassin. Okay. What and what era? Um, or what year? This was, this was early 2000s. Oh, okay. Filmed in, filmed in Chicago, and a guy I substitute taught with, his uncle was a member of the production. Oh, and hell yeah. Seemingly uh, got stiffed with a bill. I... I can't go into it but <laughs> yeah i might have to i might have to distance this podcast from you if you get too deep into it anyway one day as a substitute teacher this guy shows up with a big ziploc bag with a hat in it and he's like i don't want this in my house michael keaton's a piece of shit here and he gives me uh, michael keaton's hat from the movie the merry gentleman anyway all this is to to um fully admit michael keaton has a tiny head he's a little man this hat this hat is tiny he has a tiny head yeah michael keaton has this weird strange 80s x factor Mm -hmm. that i can't quite you just don't ever underestimate crazy (laughs) if it if it's between like an mma fighter and a guy who just did like three rails of math. I don't know who I'm betting on. Well, so, okay. So zooming away from that, the, the sort of like weird energy you're describing though, I feel like is like both what makes him really singular and also 
what allowed him to kind of wander in the woods for two decades. Because he's kind of like this... I mean, tell me if you agree or not, but he's sort of like this character actor who was a character actor and then became a movie star and he was old. He was like 39 when he was in Batman or something. And then kind of like he maybe he wasn't sure the industry wasn't sure just like what to do with this guy yeah it's odd because the way that they've chosen to rewrite history or he he rewrites history is that he you know just did some work that he didn't really like and then went to montana for like 15 years right you know and that's definitely one way to look at it and he is a he's a peculiar guy that basically only posts like paragraphs that he reads in the New York times on his Instagram profile. Uh-huh. Like he, and there's this amazing interview he did. I can't remember who it was with. You have to look it up. But the guy talks about like in the agreement to do an interview with Michael Keaton, he had to read X, Y, and Z. And it was a lot of material because Michael Keaton wanted to talk about, you know, the fall of the like Roman empire and just a <laughs> bunch of stuff that had nothing to do with Birdman. Uh-huh. At all. For as much as I love the guy, Everything he does has a, a very, it's just varying degrees of how crazy he is right. in the role, right? Well, that leads me to want to ask you, so like around the time that I encountered your band and maybe the height of you posting pictures of him on Facebook, would maybe 2011, 2012, you were essentially like stumping for this guy who was totally out of the limelight and totally out of like mainstream american film and then in 2014 he came back was that a was that a joyous moment for you or was there any hint of like this is my favorite sort of like i <laughs> like favorite sort of like underground lost kind of guy and now he's gonna be in spider-man homecoming two years from now <laughs> well i think it drastically undercut my ability to get him in a kickback music video that- for sure like that that was the one thing that kind of broke my heart i was like there's no way his agent is gonna take an email from a band he's never heard of now probably probably not um but no any i mean even if i have to go see fucking robocop like just because michael keaton's in it that's fine i'll do do it oh i did yes (laughs) i did and um you know, wasn't particularly thrilled about it, but (laughs) like, I'll never forget. We were on tour in Seattle and I remember the theater was this downtown theater and it was, there's a fourth floor walk up, um, movie theater. And I remember going to see Birdman and I will, I will never forget that experience of going, like getting to revisit this sort of old friend after all these years. It was, it was incredible. And it was such a powerful movie. Yeah. Um, so I I was nothing but happy to have him back. I wish he like he just appeared in a movie that I looks like it's financed by the fucking military, um, and I'm not I have no interest in seeing whatsoever. But I heard he got, bites a guy's ear off or something, so I'm excited about that. <laughs> He's a 68 year old man, by the way, biting people biting people's ears off in action movies. I know each it's like American Assassin. It's some awful name. It's the it's the true event horizon of uh, movie titles with American in them, I think. Yeah, I'm hoping he keeps making silly, quirky, weird movies along with uh, Spider-Man Homecoming. I wasn't going to talk to you about Mr. Mom, but then I read an interview from like 2011 where your guitarist at the time was like, Billy really likes Mr. Mom. Is this true? That would have been Tyler. That's, That's right. right. Yeah, 
I do, I do like that movie a lot. Like the endlessly sort of um, unpeaceiness of that movie now is interesting because I there's a lot. <laughs> this is me trying to intellectually unpack Mr. Mom. Do but it. The, uh, there are a lot of stereotypes that go both ways, and both that the movie was trying to break down, but also subtly reinforce. <laughs> uh, uh-huh. Happy 1983. Yeah, yeah. It's it's a really odd movie to go back and watch now. I I love it because it's it's just sort of a vehicle for like that crazy Keaton. They yeah. just kind of let him. That's a movie where he just gets to slowly dial it up mm-hmm. um, and kind of hit peak peak Keaton. It's dark, but and it's funny and it's human and ridiculous. Sure. And I. And the way Keaton delivers it, that really reminds you that he's actually an actor. He's not just a crazy person. Absolutely. It's interesting. He's human and ridiculous. I mean, often seems to be kind of like the the two things at work is that he's somehow able to pull off the... I mean, even Beetlejuice. I watched that. I'd never even seen it before, which is too bad. Wait, what? I know. I'd seen it. I watched it for the first time like two days ago. I'm sorry. Wait, are... Are you kidding? You have a fucking movie podcast and <laughs> hadn't seen Beetlejuice before? I shouldn't have, I shouldn't have admitted it. Um, Jesus, Chance. That movie is the only movie that has messed me up worse as an adult than it did as a kid. I have, I have real strong memories of like at least 10 different Sesame Street skits that permanently messed me up. And like traumatically affected me because I was uh-huh. a really hard feeling kid. But I saw Beetlejuice for the first time in like ten years, probably five years ago, and it ruined my day. It ruined my week. Like that movie really, really affects me, and I think it will continue to the older I get. Because the other thing in the the movie, I mean, if you if you step back, like the the thematic ruminations on death and its kind of similarity to how banal life can be like what what part of it got you so much there's an there's a coldness to the way that everybody except for the for adam and what's his wife's name uh adam and barbara barbara thank you those two obviously have a connection but everyone else in that movie seems so i mean it's it's intentional and it's because they're big characters but everything is built around this just pressing coldness mm-hmm. um, and distance of people and it, that's physical and emotional but in the end when they're they're doing the exorcism and oh and Otho's turning them old turning the couple old yeah, yeah. Uh, that fucking terrifies me because the, the last time I watched it it was on cable and I had to turn the channel because that scene now makes me feel so weird and strange and terrible. The feelings that that movie raises, I have not experienced in any other movie I've ever seen, which is, I think, really good on uh, Tim Burton. Right. I would honestly say that eight out of 10 of my dance moves, of all my <laughs> dance moves, 10 dance moves I have, eight of them are from Beetlejuice, and I'm not fucking kidding. From the Belafonte dancing or Beetlejuice's dancing? No, no. Uh, well, it's like a, like a healthy mix. <laughs> Dancing from this world and beyond. Yeah, absolutely. But 
I have such a strange relationship with that movie, and then I guess by extension, Michael Keaton, who has very little to do with that movie, but uh, he's like the comic relief of what's otherwise this really upsetting movie mm. for me. Mm-hmm. As sort of a parting note, what what would you like to see him do? What what cards do you think there are left to play as a kind of an observer of his career arc? Uh, obviously, they should have given him the Dark Knight Returns because Bruce Wayne's supposed to be old as hell in those. Oh, yeah? Uh, yeah, so they should have given... They will have to reboot that one more time when <laughs> Keaton's... So what, two more years when he's 70? Yeah. So he can be Bruce Wayne. That'd be good. Okay. Um, I want him to accept a movie that he thinks he has a handle on, but then it turns out he doesn't and has to... Uh, has to really like push i know birdman was really hard for him to make but he goes into roles so confidently i want somebody like i think tarantino might be able to mess him up one more time Mm. and put him in an uncomfortable position but i i don't know i think the dude's still got a lot of really good work left in him and i uh i'll always be there to see it well unless it's american assassin (laughs) be there to see 99 percent of it um well billy thanks so much for your thoughts and and your fandom man this is fun thanks chance i don't think i offered anything interesting about the guy but nobody really knows michael keaton So Chance, let me ask you this. Do you think that, I mean, I feel like I've been throwing it at you pretty good, but like you don't seem to think though that like Michael Keaton is weird and like creepy. I I, I mean, I I think he's strange. I don't think, he does not unsettle me though. Just like the way he's like, he's like a used car salesman. Like that's his thing. And that's Mm -hmm. like slimy. He's like a slime. Every His pitch to me as like, to sympathize with him as an audience member watching these movies is like, like no thanks pal like you can give me your card if you want but i'm like i'm not coming back to this dealership (laughs) but then like we did this podcast so i like kept coming back and kept not buying cars from him (laughs) Um, because i think when you put him in when you put him in beetlejuice or when you put him in uh mr mom he's like required to be like i think more cartoony but now like it's beetlejuice is not a film that has aged well Hmm. Both in its technical prowess and its sexual politics. Okay. Well, let's get into this film of 1988. 1988, the year I was born. That's uh, true. Beetlejuice premiered. Uh, and so Beetlejuice, if I can synopsize. Go for it. Um, so we have this like very idyllic town in Connecticut where this two, these two like cute uh, people who are married to each other live, uh, Alec Baldwin and Gina Davis. Mm-hmm. And they live in this like house. that's like a little too big for them, but like, they're going to start a family someday. And like the money will line up from the hardware store eventually. And like, everything will be great. And they drive in one day. They've, they've taken their vacation, but instead of like going anywhere interesting, they've decided that like for them, a vacation is just being in their big house. It's a very, so, it's a staycation from before people called it that. Right. So they, Alec Baldwin's character just needs to like ride to town for like a couple more things from the hardware store to like finish up this model that he's made of the town itself. 
Like he can't, it's the interesting thing about this movie. He can't even like, he can look out the window and see the exact same view, but he decides to make a model of it in his Mm -hmm. attic. Anyway, he's driving in to finish this model to avoid a dog. Um, they like steer their car out of the way and they end up on this bridge and they crash through the side of the bridge and then they crash into the water and then they walk home and get home some time later and they quickly realize that they're dead and then they died in the crash. And then this like other weird family moves in and they're like pretty pissed that like other people are in their house. Oh, and they can't like leave their house either. There's weird rules about being dead. Mm-hmm. And a handbook. They didn't die. Yeah, and a handbook. Because they didn't die in the house. But we'll get to that in a second. Um, but yeah, this other family, Catherine O'Hara um, and the vice principal from Ferris Bueller's Day Off and their daughter, Winona Ryder, move into the house and then like turn it a little bit more modern and like start filling it with their horrible garbage. And Alec Baldwin and Gina Davis just want to stop them and they try to go through the sort of infrastructure uh, the bureaucracy in place for the dead to like mess with the living, but they are unsuccessful doing this. So they hire used car salesman uh, demon mm-hmm. Beetlejuice, the titular Beetlejuice, to aid in scaring away um, Catherine O'Hara and the vice principal from Ferris Bueller's Day Off. And he does not do that. In fact, he just parlays being summoned into his own dream of freedom, which involves marrying a living person. (laughs) Yeah, an underage living person. He just is sort of like not only a foil for Alec Baldwin and Gina Davis, but sort of a foil for the plot of this movie. Right. He shows up when he needs to, but ultimately they're stuck with Beetlejuice at the end. (laughs) It's that's a good way of putting it. And one of the most curious things, yeah, is like for this title character, it's like the movie desperately does not want to hand the movie to him. Because so, <laughs> God knows what that would be like. Adam and Barbara are ghosts. What's the good of being a ghost if you can't frighten people away? Their house is being haunted by the living. Maybe the house could use a little remodeling. And they can't scare them into leaving. They're dead. It's a little late to be neurotic. So they're calling on Beetlejuice. Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice. Who's no ordinary ghost. You don't want his help. Can you be scary? What do you think of this? I want to talk about this. I know we have long apologized or been apologists for like shitty special effects that are like done in an analog sense. And then like that makes them forgivable. I like Cronenberg. I like the original alien. Right. This movie's special effects are garbage. Especially the big swings, the sandworm. Looks. The sandworm when they, when they like put their hands up through their skulls and like then they have to wear those head suits for like two more minutes. I hated that. Yeah, it's uh, well, it's just like a movie that has like an interest. I mean, Burton's eye I think is pretty good when it comes to static art, but it's like the movement of this movie in the special effects that looks so bad. You know, like this movie, like you can tell, like the art is going to lead to Nightmare Before Christmas, like the clay of it. Yeah, yeah. And there's a lot of like visual cues from it, but it's like, it's not that cute yet. And you're, this is not claymation. Uh Like this needs to look like maybe 
like real. And that's what's almost like, what genre is this movie? Arty horror comedy. It's yeah. but you're getting to describe it accurately. You're automatically going for like three or four qualifiers, I think. Yeah. No, you can't just say like romance. Comedy? Yeah. No. Horror. Cause it's not scary. Comedy. It's not really funny. It's a little funny. It's like a little funny. I think it's a bit funny. It's you got, think it's a bit funny? I think it's got... Um, I like some of the sight gags with Catherine O'Hara and the yuppiness of the time of it all and the deliver me from L.L. Bean kind of thing. Um, and just, you know, the fact that she makes a horrible sculpture of Beetlejuice at the end because, like, that's the extent right. of her art. Uh, I think that stuff is pretty funny. And I I don't mind the... Uh, I feel like the when they go into the the DMV the the death MV world. That's a pretty good. That's a pretty good sequence. There's some good stuff back there. That's what I think is sort of interesting about this movie and like why I, it frustrates me is that like in the moments where they have like a good idea like the DMV for dead people, which mm-hmm. I think is like a good sort of idea and it's done well visually. Um, when they pull back, when they don't have, when Tim Burton doesn't have a good idea. Like the what happens when they leave the house, right? Like they're oh my God. they're in the because it's the thing. Like not only is that a thing that doesn't look good because of the effects in the late eighties, it also like isn't a good idea, right? Like why would that be the thing? Like that's the, maybe my problem is like why? Like the that's the like the when they're in the model that he's made and they're like in the town, but yeah. they're like already in the town. There's like this weird late. Like that's a cool idea for sure. You know, and then, but then, like, even Beetlejuice, like, why is Beetlejuice? <laughs> like, wh- why did this movie choose Beetlejuice as it's, like, the choices of it, like, it could have been, like, a much weirder, much more interesting layered movie. But for some reason, it, like, chose to be, like, a bit part, kind of, like, one note, you know, Beetlejuice. I think that. The most resonant part for me and what I ultimately like about it is I think it kind of becomes Winona Ryder's movie. And the thing that touched the rest of it was was just kind of like chuckle worthy. But I found myself like genuinely touched about this being a movie about like a girl of like a 15 year old girl raised by parents who just like do not give a shit about her. And that she's, you know, she's aged too quickly and she's disaffected because like she just hasn't, she hasn't had a childhood and she can't find anyone to match her taste. And here comes this like demonic sprite that like tries to marry her and force her further into adulthood. And that ultimately the, the music cue of it all and the fact that she can be sort of parented by Alec and Gina, just like the end of the movie is just her like getting her childhood back. And I actually found that very touching. Yeah, I think that's the biggest problem with this movie is that it thinks that Alec Baldwin and Gina Davis are the protagonists of it, when really it should be, the camera should be only on Winona Ryder, and then you get something that's like Matilda meets like Augustin Burroughs running with scissors or something. Mm, that's this sort of like, you know, mixed with a little bit of Adam's family for fun. Um, I can't stress this enough. At no point is this movie, does it belong to Beetlejuice? The title character of it, which I find so bizarre. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah, I just can't decide what to, what to do with it. And him. to cast Michael Keaton, of all people, <laughs> yeah. to play Beetlejuice. Okay, but 
I think his performance, though, even though the movie has a weird kind of adversarial relationship with his wildness, I think his performance is somewhere between fun to look at and hard to look away from. Um, Especially that, like, that opening commercial where he's just... He's doing like a Hank Williams Jr. impression or something and like Brad falling backward. That is that is Cajun to me. Like that's this is the one area where I will agree with you. Like he gets he gets in the cage for this performance. <laughs> well, this I mean, this is Michael Keaton off the rails. Um, yeah. yeah, I think it's it's interesting. And it's like the, it's tough to say, like how they got how Burton got that from Keaton. That's a great question that I don't have an answer to. But like by by like 2017 standards, it's so like ridiculous. It's like cl- he's like a clown. Yeah. It's not like a like an interesting performance. But like when you see him running in his underwear in Times Square and Birdman, like you know, it's done in a way that like the art hides from the fact that it's like this movie isn't. You don't think the way he like, saunters up to the like Lego strip club is pretty amazing? But, like, why... And, like, that's the thing. Like, I'll agree with you that, like, the Keaton performance... The the, the Keaton portrayal of said Beetlejuice (laughs) is fine. But, like, why? Like, why is that... Like, why is the character... Like, what purpose does it serve that there's this, like, creepy pedophile slash sort of sexual deviant with this, like, weird green thing on one side of his neck? And, like, we never really understand, like, what his... You know, he, he like even laments the fact that like he can't explain why it is, but why he needs to like marry a young girl. <laughs> like that's like not something that he has set up. It's like just the system says that I have to be a pedophile. It's, like just don't worry about it. Well, it's in a weird way, it's like this movie like Tim Burton is arguing on behalf of like the like the liberal red tape of it all. And if you try to go outside of that, if you try to freelance, you're like a like a pedophile New Jersey plumber or something. And like, you shouldn't call that guy over just cause you don't want to stand in line with the government. That's the thing too. Like I would be with it if it's like, Oh yeah, there should be a scene where like Beetlejuice should attack them as a snake. But it's, but like thinking about it, like why, why is Beetlejuice even in the movie? Let alone like turning into like this, essentially a big dick and like chasing around the women after he throws the men out of the way. The, yeah, uh, the action the action is silly, but it's just, it's never like scary or electric enough to no. elevate the movie. I, and every time that happened, I was just like, let's just get this over with so I can get back to maybe a funny Catherine O'Hara, Jeffrey Jones dynamic or see if the Gina Davis, Alec Baldwin relationship builds anymore. Yeah. Every time there was and like a set neither of them piece, do. No, they don't, unfortunately. Didn't this movie make you think for a second though, that maybe instead of playing Batman, Michael Keaton should have played the Joker? Yes, that's a funny way to put it. Well, because, like, if his model was Jack Nicholson, like, this is such a Jack Nicholson role. Sure, yeah. But again, like, just with a little more, like... It's, but that's it's the thing, weird they didn't to say that to... Beetlejuice has, like, more cordiality than Jack Nicholson, but he kind of does. Right. But that's the thing, you need a Jack Nicholson to, like, pull this kind of role, like, as the most interesting... Like, this is the Anthony Hopkins, this is the Jack Nicholson, but it's, like, wh- who you have is Michael Keaton. Let's let's keep that straight. But I don't think it's not a deficiency of Keaton. It's a deficiency, like you said, of what the movie's relationship is to Beetlejuice. That's the thing. I think Keaton can give you manic, and Keaton can give you manic, like, on a good night's sleep. Uh-huh. 
but I don't think he can give you for me like he was never as charming as the original Batman's Jack Nicholson Joker. Yeah. Right. And I I just don't think he has the range for it. I don't think anybody in this movie has the range for any of the parts that they have. I think Alec Baldwin's particularly horrible. Gina Davis like has never looked worse. I think Jeffrey Jones is the only person used to playing like an 80s supporting character and has like come to know and love it. Uh-huh. And Catherine O'Hara is like weird enough scene to scene where she's awake. I don't know, man. But yeah. I'm going to ultimately give it, if we can get there, I'm going to give it a, a bad good. Because um, I, I still think this movie has good energy. We haven't talked about this yet. Like, I think like late Burton and also sort of later Anderson for me, when you have these very um, sort of like art piece driven filmmakers who are very into like models and miniatures and stuff like that as their careers go on they almost like do that more and more intricately to save energy because they're old older men this movie at least has the i think the the right i don't know the right sense of like nerves it's it's got it's got the right craziness to make it watchable to me and i'd absolutely watch it again also i think I disagree with you about Alec Baldwin and Gina Davis. I think that their relationship is surprisingly tender. And if the movie had given them more space, my Winona Ryder read at the end would have been even more resonant. So it's a mess, but bad good. It ultimately, like, those, the the scenes where they, like, at the end, the climax where they, like, uh, put the body back into their physical form or whatever, like, seance they're doing in the dining room. Yeah. It, it boils, it, like, it, it, deteriorates quickly into total visual incoherence for me. That's true. Like I had no idea what was going on. They're moving from room to room. It's like the, the action sequences of this like are totally incoherent to a frustrating level, I would say. Sure. And in this case, I'm going to have to say that Beetlejuice is bad, Beetle, bad. Okay. <laughs> so before we get into our third movie tonight, why don't we hear a little bit more about uh, the making of Beetlejuice and the, the film industry landscape from which it uh, ascended. You know what's really beautiful about this? You two kids picked me. You didn't have to, but you picked me. It makes me want to kiss you guys. Come on, come on. No, give me one. No, you no, hard one. Huh? All right, let's get down to this. You're right. I got a card around here somewhere. Here, here. Who do I have to kill? Here, hold that for me, would you? There. Whoa! Oh, there, you there you go. You don't have to kill anybody. Ah, possession. Good. Learn to throw your voice. Fool your friends. Fun and party. <gasps> All right, so our guest today on Be Real is a film historian and scholar based out of Austin, Texas. Her new book is Rewrite Man, The Life and Career of Warren Skarin, uh, and it explores the, frankly, too short life of of Skarin, who's a kind of forgotten figure in today's film culture, but memorable for the, the works that he touched. He's, he helped uh, shape the scripts for, for the biggest hit movies of the 80s, Batman, Top Gun, Beverly Hills Cop 2, and Beetlejuice. Um, but the book is just a really detailed, incredibly well-studied portrait of this era in American film and this kind of tireless Midwestern guy who insinuated himself right into the middle of it. Uh, but the the author, Allison Maycor, is with us today. Welcome to the show, Allison. Thanks, Chance. Thanks for having me. I wanted to start... I'm sure most people can kind of imagine what a script doctor literally does, which is, you know, rewriting, improving, uh, taking notes and and going back and coming up with new drafts of a script. But can you kind of paint the picture of how the script doctor fit into the landscape of the Hollywood development process in the 80s? Like, what do they mean to the industry? 
Well, in the 80s especially, that's when everything kind of took off. In terms of development, there were certain studios, in fact, like Paramount, that were just, they believed that is the only way you made a high-grossing movie, was to have layers and layers of writers. Development had always been, has always been a part of Hollywood, but at that time, because films were getting bigger, I think pressure was rising, um, you know, to make the movies make back their money. And there were people like, um, you know, Don Steele, who believed, like, in Jeffrey Katzenberg, that that's how you make a good movie, is you bring in as many writers on it as possible. The book is so colored by um, disagreements and arbitration over who wrote what script and kind of the difference between when you just see story by and screenplay by in the credits of a movie. You might think that those are exactly the same thing, but there's a lot of, uh, you know, blood, sweat and tears that goes into deciding that. Can you kind of tell us about how Warren was affected by that process? For Scarin, his first really big film was Top Gun. And, and that was like his second project, really. And he worked on the last 10 drafts of that film. He kept Tom Cruise from bailing on the project and because he helped to develop the Maverick character from this really kind of one-dimensional um, jerk to uh, fleshing him out a little bit, as much as you can within the confines of a big blockbuster. Sure. But Scarin was really good at that. And... Um, you know, as an aside, he really respected Tom Cruise. He thought he had a good story sense, and he thought he understood kind of how to shape that character a little bit. So he liked working with him on that. Um, so Scarin did all this. He was on set. He was uh, really instrumental because because he had lots of um, political skills, really. So he could be in meetings and really help conflicted personalities get along and kind of see their picture. He always saw his job as people have lost their focus on their project. And part of my job is to come in and show them what the project is mm. at this point. So he's very good at that. And um, so he came in and with Top Gun and did a lot of that. He worked very closely with Don Simpson in particular, the um, producer with his partner, Jerry Bruckheimer of Top Gun. Um, and then he didn't receive credit. The Writers Guild thought that the anonymous um, people assigned to that arbitration, and arbitration happens um, basically if some writer disputes the credit that the studio is proposing. And so that automatically kicks it into arbitration. And Scarin lost the credit, and he was just, you know, shocked and sensed every word that you can think of. Um, Got an associate producer credit, though, on that. And I describe it in the book as a consolation credit, um, consolation prize. You know, and Hollywood doesn't do that that often. So that, I think, spoke to Don, how Don Steele felt about him and other people and his importance on that project. And I'd just like to say one other thing. The book, somebody asked me in an interview, you know, well, is, this is a rescue narrative um, about Scarin. And I said, no, it really isn't. It's, it's a way I saw his tremendous archive and I saw his life and his experiences on these films as a great opportunity to shed light on this process of arbitration and how complicated it is. Mm -hmm. It's not that Scarin, you know, was wronged on every film. It's more that this is what happened. This is how confusing it is. You know, let's take a closer look because it's a very real part of a screenwriter's life um, then and now. Let's get into 
Beetlejuice a little bit and, and kind of the, the place that that holds in his career. Because, I mean, as you mentioned, like Top Gun is sort of like his big splash into this thing. And, and, and Batman is uh, important just because it's, pro- I don't know, maybe the the biggest hit or the movie that's worn the best. And of course it's referenced, played on in the title. And Beverly Hills Cop 2 is sort of the messiest, like ongoing arbitration. But would it be fair to say that maybe Beetlejuice was the project that most like epitomized like the sides of his like artistic life or that he found the most personal? I think, yeah, his um, agent, Mike Simpson, said, you know, that Batman was really, it was satisfying for Warren on a couple of levels. It was the most successful. He was really at the top of his game with that. But there was something about Beetlejuice, and I think specifically the opportunity to work on that Beetlejuice character. Um, You know, he and Tim Burton, Tim Burton came to Austin, and um, when they first met, he was in his, I think, late 20s. Warren was in his late 30s, maybe just about to turn 40. And there's some great pictures, I couldn't put them all in the book, of them like at these Austin, like the Austin Capitol. And, you know, places <laughs> you might not expect to see Tim Burton, a local military installation, you know, yeah. it was hilarious. And he described their time together on Beetlejuice, especially in Austin, as kind of like this pure time. Um, and I think it had to do with the project as much as, you know, they, they, were connecting together. They discovered that they both had an appreciation for kind of the dark side of things, the absurd. I wanted to ask about uh, another thing that that Burton said about Scarin that I wondered if you could unpack. It's it's a nice moment in the book, but it, I, it might merit some explaining. He said that Scarin had a knack for writing lines that only he could interpret. Like he would come back with a draft and Burton would be like, what is this? And then Scarin would like read him the line and then Burton would get it am i am i explaining that right no that's that's the way burton explains it in the you know in the interview um and i think what he meant by that is it had to do with tone it had to do with inflection you Mm -hmm. know uh, putting the emphasis on this word versus that word was something it was a knack he had for kind of putting forward these lines that Somebody could read and say, okay, I think so. But then Warren could come in and deliver it. And, you know, Warren's voice was this great kind of movie or radio, rather, announcing voice. I mean, he just had this really rich kind of deep voice. And I think that was part of it, too. Maybe there was a certain tone and a command and all of this stuff kind of made you go, oh, okay, you know. On that note, I'm I'm just wondering for you, does... Does Beetlejuice, or maybe you've heard this from readers, does Beetlejuice take on any extra resonance in his writing because he was so um, interested in mortality and writing on mortality? You talk about how he uh, was an avid reader of The Denial of Death and he was reading Jung at the time. Maybe that was for the Beetlejuice sequel. But just he really took a philosophical approach to this movie that then sort of sadly lined up with his own short life. Was there any extra resonance there for you? Well, there certainly was for me as a writer, you know, um, in fact, you know, something I talk about is, you know, this manuscript went out to some readers early on. And one of the suggestions that came back was this is such a tragic story. You should really maybe up the tragedy a bit. And I really wrestled with that because I was like, okay, you know, as a writer, I tend to be a little, you know, I don't, I sort of let the... I try to organize things to play up 
the mood, mm-hmm. whether that's, you know, delight, tragedy, whatever. Um, I don't really like to artificially create those moods, if that makes sense. And sure. so I really wrestled with that. And I just came away thinking, you know what? This is just, this is tragic. This is a tragic story. And the fact that, you know, in 1980, whatever, 82, I think Warren was working on a screenplay about the UT uh, football player, Freddie Steinmark, who died of cancer. And that research for that project is what introduced him to the denial of death. It had come out a few years earlier and it became his favorite book. And I mean, when he died, his um, close friends and assistant found stacks of those books in his office. And they're like, what is this about? And it was because he liked to give that book out. He thought, you know, really kind of struggling with this this theme that our culture struggled with, you know, how do we deal with death was super important. And so, yeah, to see it from my perspective, you know, a writer working on this in the, you know, 2009 to 2015, basically, to sort of see all of where that was going was really eerie, you know, to see like, oh God. And then the last thing he worked on, you know, was the Beetlejuice sequel. Mm-hmm. And it it was all about, you know, death and reincarnation and all of those themes. And that was even before he had his final diagnosis. Um, let's wrap up here, Allison. Can you sort of describe uh, the plot and how far along Warren got on the Beetlejuice sequel? And, and just what it meant to him, too. I mean, I, I think there was a lot of back and forth on whether he even wanted to do it as he was uh, uh, nearing nearing the end of his life. Um, but he said he decided to do it as a, as a gift quote to himself and his soul. So what, I mean, what did that unproduced project mean to him? Beetlejuice and love and Beetlejuice two. Those were like the working titles for that project. And, and Tim Burton came to him, you know, and was like, I have this treatment, you know, what do you think? Are you interested? Um, and Scarin said, yes, but he had just come off Batman and Batman was tough, you know, and, and he said to people toward the end of his life, he, he wondered if Batman sort of made him vulnerable in a sense um, to, you know, relapse with the cancer. Now, you know, there's a lot of science there, you could argue that, but he just said, you know, did this, was this too much stress for me, the mm-hmm. Batman project? Um, Beetlejuice in Love was about, you know, basically Beetlejuice revisiting Beetlejuice um, in the same wacky concoction, but throwing in this notion of Beetlejuice having a romantic interest Mm -hmm. and and what it means for Beetlejuice to be able to go back and forth between the worlds, between, you know, real life and between the afterlife. And so Scarin, again, he loved to challenge. And I think that idea of, well, how do we even represent that divide? We have to, you know, Tim Burton's about special effects and he's, how do we do that? What's that going to look like? So I think in spite of himself, maybe he was tired. He's like, I don't know if I want to do this. I think all of that got him thinking and excited and energized. And that's why he signed on. Yeah. Um, But You know, you have to think, too, I mean, Batman had done so well. I mean, the stakes only get higher. And so he knew, well, they're just going to expect more from me. Can I deliver? I mean, I think that's what every person in Hollywood thinks. Mm -hmm. 
he or she opens, you know, his or her eyes every morning. Can sure. I deliver? You know, and that for Scarin was was one of his fears on that project. And and his agent, you know, said it. You know, there's this interesting irony that he was replaced on that project because he passed away. He was replaced, I believe, by Michael McDowell, the original writer from the first Beetlejuice. Um, so, you know, there's all of this karma and, you know, all of these connections that really kind of play into how Warren saw the world that kind of make sort of a nice but sad wrap up at the end of his life. Um, but the film, you asked me to sum up the film. The film basically as little as it was sketched out, had to do with, um, I believe, an opera singer right. and her boyfriend who in the beginning of the film becomes her fiancé and then dies. And so it's all about, you know, Beetlejuice's involvement um, in that relationship and, and seeing the woman and deciding he wants to come from the afterlife to be with her. And, you know, of course, chaos and hilarity ensue. <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah. Well, they would have. Um, well, Allison, it's such an interesting uh, character portrayal and just a, a look into a... Um, uh, studio system that like I think people even people who love film even people who uh, write about film for a living just like uh, don't know about these ins and outs because it's just it's so complicated and, and so inside baseball but you do a great job of translating it and uh, yeah just thanks for coming on the show much appreciated thank you for having me I really appreciate it what are your qualifications ah well I attended Juilliard I'm a graduate of the Harvard Business School. I travel quite extensively. I lived through the Black Plague, and I had a pretty good time during that. I've seen The Exorcist about 167 times, and it keeps getting funnier every single time I see it. Not to mention the fact that you're talking to a dead guy. Now, what do you think? Thank you again to Allison Makor and Billy Yost. Uh, their work is great. You should check it out if you like uh, really melodic, kind of heartbreaking indie rock, or... Uh, really well-studied examinations of the late 80s, like, film industry. So let's go now to 1983's Mr. Mom. We'll go to the earliest era of Keaton, where he was in these sort of, like, I don't know, working-class comedies um, sure. of, like, the early and mid-80s, like, Night Shift with Henry Winkler. He's an especially interesting presence when trying to do when he's in a John Hughes movie, for God's sake, which is John Hughes wrote Mr. Mom. This is second movie. It's a lot of second movies for like household names. It's true. It's true. Um, yeah, you could easily retitle this movie uh, Not Working Boy. <laughs> yeah. Because it's basically boy. just working girl with a boy and when he loses his job. Sure, I see. What you're... <laughs> but it's, it's sort of got the same politics possibly we'll, we'll get to the politics of this movie like eventually we'll, we'll wind up there i'm sure we're gonna have to so this movie is also is the biggest premise movie of the three because this movie right. is only pretty much its premise what what, what if dad didn't work and what if what if he stayed home and what if mom got a job what would the what if, mom the implications what if of she was be? successful <laughs> uh yeah when you watch this movie which it's only like 89 minutes um you are right. watching it has trouble it has trouble finding 90 minutes though because you're only watching a premise and the obligatory 
the subject matter that must be touched on in this gender reversal. Right. This movie, yeah, it's exa- it's exactly one premise. And once that premise is satisfied, which it happens literally in the <laughs> second scene of the movie. Yeah. It doesn't know, like, what to do. So then it becomes, like, weird, like, um, what's his name? John Hughes sort of middle shot. Right. Birdman. Right. Yes. Birdman, if you cut every time something moved. I will say, though, that when you, when I look at this movie and I want to be like, oh, it's so dated, it's just like, well, hey, Bad Moms is doing really nothing more intelligent or ambitious 30 years later. No, and Bad Moms Christmas but, is just Christmas vacation. <laughs> right. It's And it's definitely like, you know, Bad Moms sort of puts in like hypersexuality where this movie puts like, what if the vacuum cleaner was alive? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Meet Dad. He's a real man. Not a beer? It's seven o'clock in the morning. Scotch? An all-out go-getter. But when his job pulled the plug on him... I'm fine. You son of a dude! They threw a switch. Let's go, oh. late. Yeah. Okay. Good luck. And he became the lady of the house. It's like so Griswoldian. It's such a, it's such like a vacation, like knockoff. At the same time, it's also just like an episode of a sitcom. Like this could just be an episode of Full House where like Bob Saget had to stay home or something. Well, this should have been the the pilot for a sitcom. Instead, it, it desires to be a 90 minute movie. I think there was a show that failed afterward, but yes. Yeah. Was this movie like, yeah, that's the thing. Like once it, so it sets up this thing where like he gets fired and he goes home and like the wife's like, I'll get a job. And he's like, a woman, a job. He's like, I'll bet you a hundred dollars that in the, the, in uh, the coming weeks, like I get a job before you do. Which had to be a dick move then too. Come on. Don't belittle your partner that way. It is a dick move. But then like the movie's like, okay, well, like, I guess the next scene logically is three weeks later when whoever's going to the job, like goes to the job. And there's like no montage of them, like both looking for jobs or anything. It's just like Terry Gar's first day. Yeah. It's like, how did we get here? Like we missed a crucial part of him, like being devastated about like not having a job. That's true. And then like her getting the job and then like, him finding out that like he lost the bet but instead it cuts to like way after that when it's like he's already accepted it and then he like is just sort of an abusive father for the next 80 minutes and then the movie is like over abusive she sort is of, abusive strong is abusive hyperbolic abusive in sort of like neglect he's a neglectful he, father he doesn't know what he's doing he's a man right I and mean, men don't know how to raise children right men <laughs> Men tried to hack the household chores that women had been doing for the prior 40 years by putting a half gallon of detergent in the laundry. What? The movie posits that Michael Keaton has never been to the grocery store. <laughs> yeah. Like, not that he, like, wouldn't be good for... I mean, like, the funnier thing would be, like, he buys the wrong thing or, like, doesn't know what things they need and, like, maybe can't cook dinner. Fine, that I can believe. But the fact that he's, like aisles produce you, you don't take the grapefruit from the bottom do you like have you you've never interacted with a store before right like what does a man require like what does being a man require it's it's weird and it's part of that it's sort of like the 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 Hughesian 
50s to 80s early 90s parallel taken to its like craziest extent where he's just like has a don draper set of skills about like right. household wherewithal and even don draper would do better 1953 than yeah i know it's but it's like that that's the problem for me is that this movie is too much like vacation is just like this movie is too figurative it's too much into like types about it's just like what if this social role clashed with this social role and especially the way john hughes sees dads he kind of hates them and he doesn't think that they relate to people and so therefore like i the sight gags in this movie are good but i just don't have much to feel or empathize with this guy about other than some social commentary right and also it's Michael Keaton. <laughs> uh-huh. And he's not a very relatable actor because he's weird and creepy. And the other thing I think that is, because of course it's John Hughes and it needs like its ridiculous sort of antics. I don't think he'd like yet figured out, you know, that because that's, that's the other problem with this movie. It should definitely be from the kids POV. It if you're going to make be. it like Mrs. If you're going to make it Mrs. Doubtfire, you have to like, the kids are the litmus test of like whether or not dad is succeeding. Not th- there's no one to hold a mirror up to the dad, yeah, up to Michael Keaton because there's nobody else around really. Yeah, so you're the one holding the social mirror, and if that's all there is, yeah. The thing with the the wubby of the middle child, there needs to be like eight of those things, right? And yeah, they need to be more convincing. The wubby, by the way, is like the kid's blanket that it's detached from, but that's like the only tangible that's what i think is interesting about this movie instead of him like becoming better at these things like as he goes and like learning the way like a human would he just like finds ways to like not really totally fail at doing those things and then you know just continues on right until he believes that his like marriage is in trouble and at that point he just like loses his mind yeah and buys a lot of things from like an LL Bean catalog. So the, and then the movie wraps up when it turns out they can both work. I will say that the problem with the Keaton performance is again, like when it reaches the mad, the fever pitch of madness, I think he's great, but it's a little bit right. like, is this going to be like John Hughes the shining? Like, cause this guy is, he screwed up from the beginning, like on the, right. on the drive up to, to uh, camp Mount Overlook or Camp Overlook or whatever, and Jack Nicholson's like, "Fuck you, kid!" And you're like, "This guy's already insane." Like Michael Keaton right. has too much of that. Oh, definitely. I think the him murdering the two kids would have been like the least weird thing about. Because ultimately, this movie wraps up with Michael Keaton cannot be a good father. Like that's the wrap up of the movie. He needs to get his job back because otherwise, they're, he'd kill himself or the whole family or they get divorced, or whatever. And then she goes down to working part-time. Like, that is the moral of this movie, is, like, the woman can work, but she better only work part-time. I don't think... And everything adding up to that is, like, is pretty unforgivable, I would say. I didn't fully understand the note we left on. I thought maybe they were both going to work, like, three days a week or something. I don't... Do we know for sure that he got hired back at the auto plant? Or like what the term, well, Jeffrey Tambor seemed like the only way he could avoid jail was by like hiring back the <laughs> whole corrupt team, which I didn't understand that plot either. No, it didn't make any sense. No, 
I, okay. It would, it's almost like if like the dad from Home Alone was like also involved with insider trading or something. <laughs> sure. I do like the just I enjoy the being around the house of this movie. I think it captures I think it captures a feeling of the manic feeling of either like kicking ass around the house in really banal ways or just like sitting in your own filth and kind of like the lack of like any comfortable space between those things. That's what I enjoyed in this movie is kind of like Keaton failing and just like drinking a beer and talking to the soap. And then all of a sudden being like, I got to shave and like remodel the house. Cause what that, what else am I supposed to do? Like that felt, that felt like a well-captured feeling to me because it's what I do. Of course. Yeah. yeah. You are sort of like Mr. Mom, but you don't even have any kids. Right. Is that better or worse? Definitely worse. I think it might be better. Not going to hurt anybody. Well, maybe except myself. better like for the kids. Yeah. <laughs> oh man. I'm just Mr. Me. <laughs> yeah. You're just Mr. Chance. Let's <laughs> <laughs> check in on Mr. Me losing his mind for another day. He's editing the podcast. Um, okay. It sounds to me like you just straight up don't like this movie and it's going to probably be a bad, bad from you. You took the words right out of my mouth. You haven't said a single positive it, it, thing about it. You don't like Michael Keaton. I think we should wrap up the show. You know what I do like Michael Keaton in, and you uh-huh. haven't seen this, and you probably don't need to, but a little-known independent film from like 2006 called The Last Time. Yeah, you tried me to Michael watch Keaton, that so many times. Is it him and Brendan Fraser? It's... It is absolutely Michael Keaton and Brendan Fraser. I think these two least likable men in Hollywood. <laughs> Come on. Oh my God. People and, love Michael Keaton. What is wrong with you? But at least that you can agree with me that they don't like Brendan Fraser. No, Brendan Fraser's not great. So for the first 80 minutes of this 90 minutes movie, they're like, he, Michael Keaton's a good salesman and Brendan Fraser was like a formerly good salesman who has the yips. Mm-hmm. And then the last 10 minutes of this movie is spent unwinding this movie as if it were Ocean's 12 in the funniest way possible. Does the movie know it's funny? No, (laughs) it has no idea, but it's incredible. It's like, it's unbelievable. The twist at the end. All right. It's almost like it's, it's a, a sleepaway camp level twist. I would say. My goodness. Oh, I almost forgot to rate Mr. Mom. I'm going to say, like, Jack Taylor throwing uncooked macaroni to his starving kids. I'm going to toss this movie uh, a courtesy bad good. Buddy, do we have anything else to say about Michael Keaton before we wrap up the show? Any other Keaton favorites? Um, other than the last time. Uh, I don't like Spotlight he's enough. Not, but I, like... I feel like Spotlight is the should be exhibit A of my everyman argument. Because he's not creepy in that movie. He's such... He's just like your dad with who's been morally compromised. I disagree with you. I think he's perfectly he's being perfectly cast as like formerly great. Okay. Like he's really good at being formerly great. Like Birdman he's formerly great. In Spotlight he's like a formerly great reporter, but like not good recently. <laughs> and then he wants to get it that. all back. But you He's couldn't you so say that was that. all but that but did like not Mr. work Mom, for him too. as like Aren't you like isn't this this guy was hot shit 5 years ago? Maybe he's always just been good at like being like somebody who lost something and it's driving him a little nuts that he can't be that guy again. Yeah. And then if you let him go a thousand years and you kill him, he turns into Beetlejuice. (laughs) Everybody, you know what? We want more audience feedback. So 
if you want to find us at Be Real on Facebook or Be Real Pod on Twitter, let us know what you think of Michael Keaton. Try to sum him up. Was he weird and creepy or just weird? And is there any every any everyman quality to him? Let us know on those social platforms. Or send us an email at berealguys at gmail.com. Uh, find the podcast, as always, at berealpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts, whether it be Stitcher or Apple or SoundCloud. Anyhow, buddy. Sir. I'll talk to you next time. I can't wait. Shake, 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 Sinora. Shake your body liner. Shake.